Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A hero's epic rise and damning fall. He would regret this decision for the rest of his life. A courageous canine that prowls the front lines. She was alerting the troops that there's something out there. And a gambling table imbued with a sinister curse. He drew his gun and shot himself in the head. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions. Unearthing wondrous treasures from the past extraordinary artifacts and bizarre relics each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed these are the mysteries at the museum a half hour from downtown los angeles sits the sprawling suburb of santa clarita whose history runs as deep as its canyons these golden hills formed a backdrop for some of the earliest Hollywood westerns. And now, the Santa Clarita Valley Historical Society, housed in a 19th century train station, proudly preserves this region's traditions. Among the western riding gear, wagon wheels, and Native American ceramics, there is one relic that, according to director Alan Pollock, stands apart from the rest. It is a chunk of cement about two feet by one foot in diameter with rusted nails in it and also sand mixed with it. It's about the size of a beach ball. This rough-hewn, heavy block played a critical role in one of the deadliest man-made catastrophes in American history. What was this historic disaster? And what classic movie did it inspire? 1908. Turn of the century Los Angeles is bursting at the seams, its population tripling in just 10 years. But this desert city can't continue to grow without a new source of water. And the brash superintendent of waterworks, William Mulholland, thinks he has the perfect solution. William Mulholland was an Irish immigrant. He was an ambitious, brilliant man. He had no formal education, but taught himself engineering and geology. To solve the city's water shortage, 
Mulholland devises a bold plan to transport water through a system of aqueducts from lakes and rivers in the Owens Valley, a rich agricultural region north of Los Angeles. To accomplish the feat, city planners deceptively pose as cattle ranchers and buy up thousands of acres of land from unsuspecting local farmers. And soon, the construction of the aqueduct begins. Mulholland used 3,900 workers to complete the task, and they had to dig 164 tunnels through the mountains between the Mojave Desert and Los Angeles. And in 1913, after five years of construction, the waterway connecting Los Angeles to the Owens Valley is completed. The achievement represents the pinnacle of Mulholland's career. But not everybody liked Mulholland. Farmers and ranchers in the area watch as their crops dry up and their land turns fallow. The people of the Owens Valley never forgot how their water was taken, and they reviled the man. And soon they take action. In May 1924, a clandestine group of local farmers destroys a section of the aqueduct with dynamite, setting off a series of disruptive attacks that becomes known as the California Water Wars. But Mulholland is determined to protect the city's access to its precious waters. Because of the sabotage of the aqueduct, Mulholland decided to build a series of reservoirs closer to the city of Los Angeles to maintain about a year's supply of water in the event of a problem. And the centerpiece of the project is the St. Francis Dam, a massive concrete structure located just miles from the city. After two years, construction is complete and the reservoir is filled with 12 million gallons of water from the aqueduct. But on the morning of March 12, 1928, something is wrong. The dam keeper who lived just below the dam noticed muddy water flowing out of the foundation of the western abutment of the dam. William Mulholland receives a frantic phone call and calmly arrives later in the morning to inspect the structure. He came to the conclusion that the water leakage from the dam was normal and decided to go back home. He would regret this decision for the rest of his life. At three minutes before midnight, just hours after Mulholland inspected the site, the colossal dam suddenly gives way. A huge wall of water, 10 stories high, escaped from the dam into the valley below. It took with it homes, roads, bridges, and created a massive path of destruction on its way to the Pacific Ocean. When Superintendent Mulholland receives the news, he is devastated. His first thought was, please, God, don't let anybody be killed. Rescuers sift through the wreckage, like this chunk of the dam now on display at the Santa Clarita Valley Historical Society. And they are shocked by the unimaginable loss of life. Nearly 600 people have been killed in the disaster. In the wake of the tragedy, authorities are determined to find out if the collapse of the dam was an engineering failure or the result of a deliberate act of sabotage. Mulholland himself was suspicious that the angry people in the Owens Valley may have sabotaged or dynamited the dam. But when experts investigate the site, 
they discover the dam may have been doomed before it was even built. Turned out that the location of the dam was the true culprit in the disaster. The structure was built on bedrock, destabilized by an ancient landslide thousands of years ago. And under the massive force of 12 million gallons of water, the mountainside once again gave way. But sadly, William Mulholland's insatiable ambition may also have played a critical role. In order to increase the water capacity of the dam, Mulholland had decided to raise the height of the dam by 20 feet but failed to widen the base of the dam in order to compensate for that. Following an inquest, Mulholland is cleared of any criminal responsibility, but his meteoric career is over. The man who had been such a hero to the city of Los Angeles spent the rest of his life as a broken man until his death in 1935. But the legacy of William Mulholland lives on. The tragic tale of the waterman's downfall becomes the inspiration for Roman Polanski's 1974 blockbuster, Chinatown. And today, at the Santa Clarita Valley Historical Society, this raw chunk of cement serves as a tangible reminder of one man's ambition, which led him from triumphant heights to the depths of disgrace and ruin. In the city of brotherly love, Just steps from Independence Hall and the famed Liberty Bell stands the Philadelphia History Museum. From George Washington's desk to Benjamin Franklin's drinking cup and the boxing gloves worn by legendary local Joe Frazier, this vast repository of relics screams hometown pride. But among these artifacts of iconic heroes stands an object whose heroic actions have been largely forgotten. It's a small mixed-breed dog. It's about 18 inches high and maybe about 20 inches from snout to hindquarters. Brown coat with a lovely little blue blanket that has some various insignia on it. She doesn't look particularly extraordinary. But museum executive director Charles Croce knows that this cute canine displayed unparalleled bravery during one of the world's most violent conflicts. Who is this dog? And what surprising role did she play in the First World War? Fall 1917. American soldiers at Camp Meade Army Base in Maryland are preparing to enter the greatest conflict the world has ever known. World War I. Among them is Private Johnny Evans of the 315th Infantry. One day, the soldier presents his commanding officer with something he hopes will earn his superior's favor. An eight-week-old stray dog. So think about the fact that, you know, you're training to go to war. Here's a puppy. Obviously, it's something that everybody really could rally around. Not only does the mixed-breed pup charm the captain, but she soon becomes the beloved mascot of the entire 315th Infantry and the soldiers come up with the perfect name for their new mutt. The unit named her Philly the dog because all of the enlisted men in that particular unit were from Philadelphia. After months of training, the men of the 315th prepare to ship out to the bloody battlefields of Europe. But for Philly's guardians, there's a problem. Pet dogs are not allowed on the front line these young troops really couldn't bear to leave this young puppy behind. 
so the soldiers attempt to smuggle the small filly on board their ship. And to their relief, the plan works. Philly was en route to France. September 1918, northern France. Now on the front lines, Philly quickly acclimates to the sights and sounds of war. And as the battles rage, she is a source of great comfort to her troops. But no one is prepared for what is about to happen one fall pre-dawn morning. It is still dark. The fighting Philadelphians are in their trenches. They're trying to catch a few hours sleep before the dawn would break. The exhausted men are unaware of a creeping threat. A group of German soldiers slowly making their way toward the American trenches to launch a surprise attack. Will Philly and the sleeping soldiers survive the sneak assault? It's September 1918 on the battlefields of France. As night rolls in, the U.S. Army's 315th Infantry, along with their courageous mutt Philly, settles in for some rest. But as the men drift off to sleep, a group of stealthy German soldiers prepares to attack. Will the 315th make it through the night alive? As the Germans inch closer, suddenly, Philly begins to stir. This was a dog who could sense things. She was aware that there was some movement and starts alerting the troops that there's something out there. The men of the 315th rise to the trusted mascot's call to arms and launch a fearsome counterattack. When the smoke settles, the Germans have retreated, and the courageous canine is credited with saving countless lives. Philly really turned into a very uh, important uh, set of eyes and ears for those soldiers with extrasensory perception. But as the tale of Philly's heroics spread, she becomes a target of the enemy. The Germans were so annoyed by the fact that they had to retreat that there was a reward of 50 Deutschmarks, which was a lot at the time, put on the dog's head. But Philly escapes the German crosshairs once and for all when armistice is declared on November 11, 1918. Gleefully, the pup returns to Camp Mead with her surviving band of brothers. And the 315th Infantry award the canine with the rank of private, along with a very distinct honor. The unit itself created a Purple Heart Award for valor under enemy fire. After a remarkably full life, Philly passes away in 1932 at the age of 15. And with her passing, the men of the 315th unveil a plan to commemorate the battle-tested hero. Money was raised to have Philly brought to a taxidermist so she could be there as a mascot for the unit. She fills this role until the unit disbands in 1995. 
And now, the dog hero rests in peace at the Philadelphia History Museum, adored by visitors of all ages. A testament to the valor and service of man's best friend. Surrounded by a shimmering desert landscape and tourist attractions like the nearby Hoover Dam, Las Vegas is home to the Mob Museum, where the dark underworld of the American Mafia is on full display. The museum's exhibits include Bugsy Siegel's monogrammed rings, a piece of the wall from the site of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and a replica of the iconic Tommy gun. And surrounded by these notorious artifacts sits an object that appears rather ordinary, at least by 1950s standards. It's not hard, not soft, comfortable enough for you to sit in and get a shave and a haircut. It doesn't look all that special. But as historian Michael Green can attest, this barber's chair was at the center of one of the most sensational assassinations in mafia lore. Here's the spot where some really important and terrible history was made. So what awful fate befell the last occupant of this chair? And how did the headline-grabbing event transform cinema history? Spring 1931, New York. In the midst of prohibition, two rival gangs are locked in a deadly feud for control of the illicit and lucrative liquor trade. One soldier in this bloody war is hot-headed thug Albert Anastasia. Anastasia, early on, establishes himself as someone who will do what needs to be done. His vicious temper and ruthlessness attracts the attention of Charles Lucky Luciano, a high-ranking mafioso who's looking to enhance his influence. Lucky Luciano is trying to get in there and take over the whole mob. Now, Luciano's got to knock off a couple of big bosses to do that. Luciano's targets include not just the head of a rival gang, but also his own boss, Joe Messeria. And he wants the cold-blooded Anastasia to help him. Without hesitation, the up-and-coming gangster agrees to the scheme. April 15, 1931. Luciano invites Joe Messeria to lunch at an Italian restaurant in Coney Island. Luciano had to go to the bathroom. He got up and left. And then four guys came in. They let loose a hail of gunfire. And by the time Luciano returns to the table, Messeria is dead. Believed to have been one of the executioners, Anastasia has now helped secure Luciano's rise to power. That took Luciano up the ladder in the mob and he took Albert Anastasia with him. And soon, to keep rival factions and business associates in line, Luciano hands Anastasia the top job of enforcer of Murder, Inc. Murder, Inc. was the enforcement arm for the syndicate. Essentially in charge of killing whoever needs killing. And in the 1930s, they did it, and they did it very well. The cold-blooded Anastasia thrives in the role and soon earns a powerful moniker. One nickname is the Mad Hatter because he's crazy. He will kill anybody he feels like killing. Over the next 25 years, it's said that Anastasia's Murder, Inc. is responsible for some 700 murders. But by 1957, 
Anastasia's ruthlessness is starting to rattle some of his fellow mobsters. Although no one has been inclined to tangle with the mob's most feared killer yet, that's all about to change. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Sharks have been the subject of lore and legend for centuries. A lot of what we think is shark fact is actually shark fiction. Shark Week, the podcast from Discovery Channel, shreds through those stories and separates fact from fiction. I'm your host, Kasha Patel. In every episode, I will tell you an imaginary story. After the story, we rip up and reveal the scientific truths of these fishy tales. Listen to Shark Week, the podcast from Discovery Channel, wherever you get your podcasts. It's 1957, New York City. Italian immigrant Albert Anastasia is the leader of the mob's enforcement arm known as Murder, Inc., an institution he rules with an iron fist. But what Anastasia doesn't realize is that his reign of terror is about to come to a blood-curdling end. October 25th, just after 10 a.m., Midtown Manhattan. Anastasia is visiting the Grosso Barbershop in the Park Sheraton Hotel, where he settles into this barber's chair for his regular cut and shave. But as the gangster relaxes under a hot towel, two masked men enter the shop, train their weapons on the defenseless Anastasia, and fire. After five shots, he went down. The final shot was to the back of his head. The once invincible leader of Murder, Inc. is dead. In the wake of the audacious public hit, the NYPD immediately launches an investigation. The police put supposedly up to 100 detectives on this. I mean, this is a big deal. But if anyone observed this brutal gangland execution, they're not talking. You have to think the witnesses realize this is not the kind of murder you want to witness. And soon, the investigation stalls. The NYPD did its best, but to this day, it's unsolved. But while Albert Anastasia's reign comes to a vicious end, his brutal and bloody legacy lives on. Over a decade later, a struggling middle-aged author named Mario Puzo pens what will be his greatest work, The Godfather. He bases the novel, and later the movies, on research of real-life mobsters like Anastasia. The hot-tempered mobsters. 
Sonny Corleone, James Caan's character, the Mo Green character, as the guy's willing just to kill because they're emotional and they're angry. You can see some Albert Anastasia in those guys. The public assassination of Anastasia is also believed to have inspired the legendary film's final murder sequence, where rival mob bosses are brutally executed in broad daylight. Today, the site of Albert Anastasia's execution, since cleaned of blood and bullet holes, sits on display at the Mob Museum, a reminder of the legendary gangster and his lasting impact on American cinema. Nestled in the foothills of Virginia's Blue Ridge Mountains is the charming town of Culpeper, home to the Library of Congress's Packard Campus for Audiovisual Conservation. Here, the largest collection of movie, television, and sound items in the country line over 90 miles of shelves. And among the mountainous stacks are two spools of 16-millimeter celluloid that have left a lasting impression on moving image department director Mike Michon. They're each about 800 feet long, representing roughly 30 minutes of running time of a show from December 5th, 1956. Together, these reels comprise one of TV's most notorious episodes, one infused with real-life deception, bribery, and revenge. So what infamous show was recorded on these reels? And how did it change television programming forever? It's 1956. TV has replaced radio as the entertainment staple of America. And topping the ratings charts are a host of new programs in a compelling new format, quiz shows. On Wednesday, September 10th, NBC debuts their latest offering, a program called 21. 21 was a game of skill. You get two contestants, and they're asked some relatively difficult trivia questions. The show is the brainchild of Dan Enright, one of the most successful producers in the industry. But his latest production has a rocky premiere. The first show, by all accounts, was a disaster. The initial contestants couldn't answer most of the questions. And with 21 facing cancellation, Enright must come up with an idea to right the sinking ship. Enright said, we've got to build up the drama in the show. We can't rely on it to happen naturally. Enright determines that the most effective way to heighten the drama is to give the contestants the answers to each question in advance, instructing them exactly when to provide the correct response and when to lose. But Enright's clandestine machinations will also prove to be his downfall. On October 17th, Enright brings on a nebbishy college student named Herb Stemple for his first appearance on 21. Stemple is carefully groomed to garner sympathy from the television audience. He wore very thick glasses. He looked like a nerd, and that's what they wanted him to look like, a brainiac. Enright sets Stemple on a six-week winning streak, and 21's ratings soar as the manufactured drama captivates American households. But by the end of November, viewers begin to tire of the bookish contestant. 
So, on November 28th, Enright pits the champion against a new opponent, a handsome professor named Charles Van Doren. He was tall, had matinee idol good looks, very well-spoken, very charming man. Audiences took to Van Doren immediately. Van Doren and Stemple play to a series of carefully engineered ties over four episodes, ensuring the return of viewers eager for a resolution to this nail-biting drama. Finally, Enright decides to end their epic battle and instructs Stemple to lose on the December 5th show. But one day before his final scheduled appearance, Herb Stemple pays a visit to Enright's office and makes a strange request. Stemple offers to refund a portion of his winnings if he is allowed to play honestly. But Enright refuses, telling the contestant that he must cede the championship. At 10.30 p.m. on December 5th, 15 million Americans tune in to the latest face-off. Five questions into the program, Stemple leads 16 to nothing and prepares to take the next question worth $100,000. What motion picture won the Academy Award for 1955? Stemple knew this. It was a film called Marty with Ernest Borgnine. But Dan Enright has given Stemple a strict order to throw the game. So what will Stemple do? It's December 5th, 1956. On the popular quiz show, 21, a contestant named Herb Stemple has just been asked a question worth $100,000. But what viewers don't realize is that he's been instructed by the show's producer, Dan Enright, to throw the game, even though he knows the correct answer. So what will Stemple do? Before a captivated audience of 15 million, Stemple gives his answer. On the waterfront? No, I'm sorry, the answer is Marty. Marty. This incorrect answer, captured on these reels, now archived at the Library of Congress, seals Stemple's fate. As planned, Charles Van Doren unseats the champion and embarks on his own winning streak. Van Doren stayed on 21 for another four months and wound up winning $128,000. By far the largest amount of money anybody had ever won on a game show to that point. As Van Doren's star rises, Herb Stemple sinks into obscurity. Herb Stemple was bitter, especially as he saw Van Doren become such a celebrity. That really began to stick in Stemple's craw. In August of 1958, Herb Stemple takes his full account of 21's show-fixing to the press, launching the first major scandal of the television age. And NBC yanks 21 from the airwaves. In the wake of the fiasco, Congress passes regulations outlawing the fixing of televised quiz shows. And the controversy has a chilling effect on the once popular form of entertainment. It essentially drove game shows off the air for quite some time. And today, at the Library of Congress's Packard Campus for Audiovisual Conservation, these two film reels preserve images and sound of the infamous show 
that brought an end to television's innocence. Just outside the entertainment and gambling capital of the world is a museum dedicated to the history of Las Vegas, the Clark County Museum. Displayed here are showgirl headdresses, an original wedding chapel from the Strip, and a retro penny slot machine. But according to museum director Mark Hall Patton, there's one set of objects in these galleries with a heartbreaking connection to the bright lights of Sin City. The artifacts that we have here are two pieces of aluminum. They're twisted, bent, and obviously have been through some kind of tremendous force. These artifacts are inextricably linked to an infamous showbiz tragedy. What are these mangled fragments? And what role did they play in an incident that shocked Hollywood and the nation? January 1942, Los Angeles, California. 33-year-old Carol Lombard is one of the most beautiful and beloved actresses in Hollywood. Carol Lombard was a very famous individual at the time and really had a strong impact on America. Her whirlwind romance and marriage to superstar Clark Gable provides endless fodder for the Hollywood gossip machine. But in the winter of 1942, Lombard, who is known for her screwball comedies, takes on a much more serious role. With the bombing of Pearl Harbor just months earlier, the U.S. is now embroiled in World War II. And the government turns to selling war bonds as a way to quickly raise money for the conflict. To promote this critical endeavor, the government turns to the stars. You wanted people that could bring out large crowds, and Carol Lombard certainly was one of those. Lombard jumps at the opportunity to serve the nation. And with her mother by her side, the star launches a multi-city tour to promote war bonds. To contribute every ounce of energy and every dollar that we can possibly spare. When the tour concludes in Indianapolis, an exhausted Lombard is eager to fly home and see her husband. But there is a problem. Lombard's mother is terrified of flying and wants to return to California by train. Carol wanted to take the plane. She was not an easy one to say no to once she had made up her mind. After a determined debate, the pair agrees to let the flip of a coin decide their fate. Unfortunately, Carol won the coin toss. On January 16th, Carol Lombard and her reluctant mother embark on a journey that will go down in infamy. After hours of smooth flying, the aircraft makes a refueling stop in Albuquerque, New Mexico. When they arrived in Albuquerque, they found out that the Army Air Corps had soldiers that needed to make it to California. So they were going to bump the civilian passengers and the soldiers were going to go on the flight. Well, that was fine, except Carol Lombard wanted to get home. Lombard begs the crew to allow her and her mother to stay on the flight. Then another passenger steps forward and volunteers to give up his seat. And the flight proceeds to Boulder City, Nevada. The problem was, when they came to southern Nevada, they got here after dark. 
The only place that they could land here that was lit at night was the Las Vegas Army Air Base. After a brief stopover, just after 7 p.m., the plane climbs into a clear, moonless sky. A half hour later, witnesses south of Las Vegas report seeing an explosion in the mountains. And they called down to the sheriff and said, there's been a crash. Rescue workers scramble to the site of impact and discover mangled wreckage, including this eight by four and a half inch metal faceplate from the cockpit. And soon news of the crash spreads. 22 people are dead, including the beloved star and patriot, Carol Lombard. In the wake of the attack on Pearl Harbor, questions arise. Were the passengers victims of wartime sabotage? It's 1942. A passenger plane carrying Hollywood superstar Carol Lombard mysteriously crashes into a mountain. While the nation mourns the passing of a silver screen legend, investigators search for answers. Is this a case of pilot error? Or is there something more sinister afoot? The FBI launches an investigation and immediately focuses on a Hungarian immigrant named Joseph Segeti, who disembarked in New Mexico. Could Segeti be a Nazi saboteur, determined to bring down a popular cheerleader for the U.S. war effort? Realistically, if you were going to harm the U.S. war effort, killing a major actress and, and a plane load of people wouldn't have been a bad way of doing it. But after an exhaustive investigation, Segeti is cleared of any wrongdoing. As the inquiry continues, officials pour over the plane's flight pattern and finally determine the true cause of the accident. According to the flight plan, when the plane was diverted from Boulder City to Las Vegas, the pilot failed to adjust his navigational settings. Apparently, he flew directly into the mountainside and did not even see it. In time, rescuers are able to recover the victim's bodies, and Lombard is buried in California. The actress is honored as the first female casualty of the war effort. And this piece of plane wreckage at the Clark County Museum will forever memorialize a brave group of soldiers heading off to war and an unforgettable Hollywood legend. Virginia City, Nevada. This former mining town owes its existence to the Comstock Lode, a massive silver deposit discovered here in 1859. And today, among the old hotels and watering holes of this former Wild West town is the 1875 Delta Saloon. Here, visitors can cozy up to the bar or try their luck at one of over 120 slot machines. But there's one antique item in the saloon that, according to local historian Sharon Land Gengenheimer, is strictly off-limits. It's about five feet wide. It's 34 to 36 inches deep. The wood is worn. It's cracked. The felt has worn away, and the brass tacks around are, are, are pretty tarnished. This piece of furniture holds a dark secret. What chilling events played out at this gaming table? 
And why will it never host another game of cards again? 1891, Virginia City, Nevada. For the last 30 years, this town has exploded from a small western outpost to a booming mining center. While some miners spend their money on women and booze, a successful businessman named Charles Fosgard is looking to double down. Charles Fosgard amassed a large amount of money, and he wanted to reinvest his money and decided to go into gambling. One way to get into the gaming business is to buy a table and set up in one of the local saloons. And when Fosgard discovers an old gaming table tucked away in the back of the Delta Saloon, he considers it a stroke of luck. It's pretty worn. It's a very old table, but it's beautiful. Fosgard changes its curious layout and puts it into service as a blackjack table. Soon, gamblers are losing hand after hand at Fosgard's table. But then, one night, an inebriated miner staggers into the sawdust and bets his last $5 coin. He put the coin down and won. And then bet that again, and bet it again, and bet it again, and then somehow miraculously hit a streak of good luck. The miner lets his winnings ride all night, watching them multiply, seemingly with every turn of the card. Fosgard pays out $85,000, draining him of all his cash. But the miner continues to win. So Fosgard is forced to hand over his most cherished assets, his horses and his share in a local gold mine. So by the end of this evening in 1891, Charles is demolished. He drew his gun and committed suicide right there at the table. Some say Fosgard is just the unlucky victim of a game of chance. But rumors begin to circulate that this curious piece of furniture has sinister powers. Some even believe that the table is cursed. It's the 1890s in Virginia City, Nevada. A man named Charles Fosgard buys a gaming table, hoping to make a mint off of local miners. But when one gambler bankrupts his table, a broken Fosgard takes his own life. Soon, whispers of a dark and sinister past begin to circulate that this gaming table is cursed. The tale begins in 1860, 31 years before Charles Fosgard's demise. Just as miners begin flocking to Virginia City, a new card game sweeps the West. It's called Pharaoh. The game of Pharaoh was absolutely huge. It was huge all across the United States. As the story goes, no one is more eager to jump in on the new Pharaoh craze than a notoriously greedy man named Black Jake. He buys a table and instantly begins separating miners from their hard-earned cash. Black Jake is his faro table. He's running it every single night. People are losing. That makes Black Jake really a happy man. It is said that Black Jake relishes in the misfortune of those who hand him their last penny. But the tables are about to turn. 
One evening, a bold miner bellies up and bets his life savings on the game's final hand and strikes it rich. This fellow wins $70,000. That's over a million dollars in today's money. Black Jake doesn't have that kind of money. The devastated proprietor is in a bind. He had no choice. He stepped back from the table and shot himself in the head. Some believe there's a certain justice in Black Jake dying at the very table where he planned to make a fortune off the backs of others. Then, a few years later, it is said that another entrepreneur uses the same table to run Pharaoh games. And he, too, meets a sudden and violent end. Now, many in Virginia City are convinced that the suicide of the avaricious Black Jake has cursed the table. And those who come to own it are gambling with their lives. No one dares play on its well-worn surface again. By 1891, most people who had been here at 1860 were gone. So the whole aura of this particular table kind of diminished. That is, until Charles Fosgar discovers it about 30 years later. Some believe that he unwittingly unleashed its terrible powers and became its final victim. And today, while it's possible to gamble elsewhere in Virginia City, the 1875 Delta Saloon keeps this unlucky relic off-limits for fear that its fatal curse may strike once more. From a hero dog to a devastating disaster, a rigged game show to a gambling curse. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.